musically as well. And so he'll be in Jonesboro, Arkansas. We're, um, today, we're trying to take a group to go see him. If, if you're interested in that, today actually is the last day um, to sign up for that. You can do that online and reserve your tickets. Uh, it's on our website. Um, if you want to uh, do that from your uh, chair, you can do that through an envelope. $35 will cover the cost of the entry, and uh, we're going to try to, like I said, provide transportation if we have enough people sign up. So um, if you're interested in that, hopefully we'll be able to get over there and get to see Tim live in concert uh, in October over in Jonesboro, Arkansas. So don't want to miss that as well. It's interesting that he's talking about uh, praise and uh, different praise and worship styles in church. Today we're going to, uh, we're going to look at a, a few different people as we talk about the 12 sons of Jacob. And we're going to look at how there's really two of the 12 sons from this point forward in the Genesis narrative that the Bible's going to begin to kind of narrow in and focus on. Um, and one of the 12 sons, his name means praise. His name literally means or is translated as praise. And the other son, his name means that God will increase or God will add to you. Or in other words, he will bless you. And I started thinking about, you know, these two sons. We're going to focus on them. I'm going to talk about them here in just a moment as we look at the, as we look at the text together in Genesis chapter 30. But I started thinking about the, the connection that exists between God's blessing, his provision, and our praise. And I think sometimes we forget, what does praising God really mean? Like when we get up here in our, our praise, that's when we call it our praise team, right? Our worship team, our praise team. When we get up here and sing songs, is that the end all be all of what praise is? I want you to think about it in the terms of maybe your spouse or your children. If you praise your spouse or you praise your children, what are you doing? You're, you're bragging on them a little bit, aren't you? You're, you're telling them, you're making a statement to them, and you're, you're acknowledging something good in them or something good that they have done, maybe to you or to somebody else or whatever it may be. But, but when you praise somebody, you're, you're lifting them what? You're lifting them up. And praising God should be a natural and a regular part of our relationship with the Lord, because if anybody is worthy of what? Praise. God is worthy of praise. Not just because of what he has done or what he will do or what he is doing in your life. That's, that's enough to praise him right there. God, you, you meet my needs. You forgive me of sin. You, you take care of me. You watch over me. You, um, you're, you're always there for me. All of these things that God does for us. But it also, we can just simply praise him for who he is. Just of who you are, God. Because he's good and he's gracious and he's patient and kind and merciful and righteous and true and just. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And that is what it means to have this connection in our life about how we praise God and how he blesses us immeasurably what? More immeasurably more than anything that we could ever possibly ask or 
How many of you in the room today are blessed more than you deserve to be? Every hand in the house ought to go up. Because if we have any understanding whatsoever, we understand that God is good and he has blessed us so much more than we could ever possibly deserve. And because of that, and who he is and what he's done for us, we should in turn do what? Praise him. Tell him, lift him up. Tell him how good he is. Tell him how thankful you are. Tell him what an awesome job God is doing. God, you're doing a pretty awesome job running things. And so today what we're going to see in this, in this passage in Genesis is that we're going to be introduced to the 12 sons of Jacob. And I'm not going to spend all the time today even getting into all of their names and, and you know, anything like that. I, again, I want to I really take this passage and I really want to focus it in on two of the 12 sons of Jacob. Because the scripture from this point on, I'm in Genesis chapter 30 this morning, if you have your Bible. And the scripture from this point on is going to focus on these two sons of Israel or sons of Jacob. And they're going to be prominent in, on the, in the very forefront of the of the biblical narrative from this point forward and i think there's a reason for that and you're going to see that here in just a moment and so i i gave my message a title because i think it it's uh it speaks very very plainly to what this whole passage and this whole message is about is that we're going to be looking at jacob judah joseph jesus that's called alliteration for those of you who have ever been to school right you line up all the J's. So you can remember Jacob, Judah, Joseph, and Jesus. So look at Genesis chapter uh, 30 this morning. And if you remember from last time, we, we were talking about how, how Jacob, he, he goes away. He, he, married, he, finds, he falls in love with Rachel. He has this, this special, unique love for Rachel, and yet... Laban, Rachel's father, ends up kind of pulling a fast one on him, and he ends up married to Leah, uh, his, her sister, and then he ends up marrying Rachel, and so it's very much not an ideal situation. The dynamic, the family dynamics from that point on are very dysfunctional, to say the least. There's a lot of competition, a lot of jealousy, a lot of strife within the family, and you see this whole story playing out, and so what you're going to see here is that both Leah and Rachel have a son that is significant to the biblical narrative, to the overall story of redemption. And so what you'll see here, look with, with me in Genesis chapter 30. And so Leah had four sons to begin with, okay, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then the, her fourth-born son was named what? Judah. And look at what it says, and actually at the very end of chapter 29, it says, uh, verse 35 of chapter 29, it says, Leah conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will what? Praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. And so then you begin to see this back and forth where Rachel, you know, she gives her... Uh, maidservant basically her mistress to Jacob and they, he begins to have father uh, she's like raising surrogate children through him and again remember what I told you last week just because the Bible describes something doesn't mean God endorses these things the Bible is a very it's a very it's not it's not G-rated 
Well, let's just be honest. I mean, it's, it's a real life book. It, it reveals everything uh, about the flaws and the failures and the and, and it doesn't try to sugarcoat or overcome or embellish any of these things or, or try to paint these people in an unrealistic light. It's like, hey, this is what happened. It wasn't that God was okay with what was going on. It's just this is describing what's going on. And so Jacob is starting to have now children through Rachel's maidservant, and then Leah gets jealous of that. So then she's like, well, I'll give Jacob my maidservant, and they go back and forth, start having again this competition within the family. But Rachel, remember, was the one that Jacob what? That was the one he really loved. And she was barren. And finally, God opens her womb, and she is able to bear a son. And if you see right here in verse 22 of chapter 30, we kind of skip over a little bit in chapter 30, verse 22, it says, Then God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add another son to increase, to add. And so what I want to do today is that I'm going to try to take a kind of a step back and look at this from a really a, a more of a 30,000 foot view perspective of how these four characters, Jacob, Judah, Joseph, and Jesus, how they are all connected and how how God used them to fulfill his purpose and accomplish his will that's, got, that's led us all the way up until this actual point where we are right now today. And so here's what I want to do today. I just want to jump off into to, uh, the first, um, my first point for the, for the morning is that pretty simple, just want to kind of get started very easy. It says that Jacob's 12 sons would become the 12 what? These are now, these are now the, the sons of Jacob, okay? And they would eventually turn into and become, as they began to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and these would grow into the what? The tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, here's what you got to understand real quick. Just some, some interesting facts that you may or may not understand. In Genesis chapter 30, we're only introduced to 11 of Jacob's 12 sons. It wasn't until later, remember Rachel, which was the wife that Jacob really loved, she gave birth to Joseph, finally had a son, a biological son of her own, and then it was later in life that she also had another son, and his name was, does anybody know? Benjamin. But Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. So it was a, it was a bittersweet day for, for Jacob. And she actually named him Ben-Ami, which is the son of my misery. And Jacob changed his name to Benjamin. And so he, he wanted to acknowledge that even though he lost his wife on that day, he gained another son. So there, those are the 12. So you have 11 sons here in Genesis 30. And then later down the road, I think it's maybe the next three or four chapters, we find out about Rachel giving birth to Benjamin. So those are the 12 sons of Jacob who eventually became the 12 tribes of Israel. But there's another little caveat here that you need to understand. I think this is important for us to understand the Bible. Is that, remember, Joseph, we just read here in Genesis 30, she said, Rachel, as she prayed and named Joseph, she said, I will name him Joseph because she said, may the Lord add to me another what? Another son. Well, was that Benjamin? Maybe. 
But, but Joseph's name really literally means God increases. It's like a, it's like a double portion. It's what his, name, his name kind of, there's a, there's a nuance in the name of Joseph that means that, that he is going to be, receive a double inheritance, a double portion. Well, guess what happens? After Joseph went to, to Egypt, and, and y'all know the, the whole story of Joseph that we, that we see play out in Genesis, he got married in Egypt, he took an Egyptian wife, and he had two what? Two sons. Ephraim and Manasseh. And they were mixed. He was a Hebrew, his, his wife was an Egyptian, so they were of mixed descent. And when Jacob came, now remember, Jacob is Joseph's father. He's very old in age. Joseph saves his family because they have to come down in Egypt during the time of famine to survive the famine. And so God uses that whole story about Joseph to save the whole family of Jacob. When Jacob comes to Egypt, just nearing his deathbed, he tells Joseph, remember, what does Joseph's name mean? A double what? A double portion to increase, to be added unto. And he tells Joseph, he says, hey, Joseph, you know what? I'm going to bless you with a double portion, a double inheritance. And you know what Jacob did? He adopted Jacob, Joseph's two sons. Jacob's grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, he adopted those two boys into his what? Into his family. And there's the whole story where he crosses his hands. We're going to look at that in a minute. He crosses his hands and he blesses the younger over the older and you know, that whole thing plays out. So technically speaking now, you may not have ever heard this, that Jacob actually didn't have 12 sons, he had 14. If you count his two adopted grandsons. And then one more little interesting note is that the thirdborn son of Leah, his name was Levi, and Levi was, he's, he's worth mentioning here because his descendants became the servants and the ministers of the tabernacle and the temple, and they became the what? The priests who served the Lord day and night. And the Levites did not get an inheritance in the land. They didn't have any portion in the land. So who took care of the Levites? Everybody else. That's why the other 11 tribes would bring offerings and sacrifices. And as they bring the offerings and sacrifices to approach God and to worship, who would eat that food? The Levites. When they brought their tithes into the storehouses and all the grain, who got to eat that food? The Levites did because they didn't have any land. Very few Levites owned land, and so therefore they had to depend on the offerings and the sacrifices of all of their other tribes. And so that's just, those are just a few things that I think it's important for us to kind of understand. Now again, these are just the, the, this is the account of when these children were born when they're very, very young, but they eventually would grow into the tr 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 sons of 12 tribes of Israel. Now, let's talk about Judah. Let's talk about Judah for a second. Why was Judah special? Now, if you read the story, the life, the life story of Judah, I want to tell you something. Uh, this guy had some issues. Was he perfect? Severely flawed. I don't have to read it. We wouldn't have to read very much further for you to find out that Judah actually ends up, well, I don't know if I want to go into it. I don't want to... I don't want to 
steal that story. But he does something very disreputable and ends up getting into a very big scandal and has a child with his daughter-in-law. And you have to go read that story and, and just understand, again, we see these characters in Scripture severely flawed. God doesn't sugarcoat them. So it's not that Judah was necessarily some super righteous guy. We see him grow later in life, and he, he does have, a, have some moments of faith and, and, and some growth, maturity in his life, which is what we see with Jacob as well. But Judah was chosen, and this is where you need to, if you want to fill in your blanks, you need to understand the, the significance of Judah and the tribe of Judah in the Bible and in the whole overall story of redemption is that Judah would represent the royal house of Israel, which is important because who would come from that royal house? The Messiah, the king, the anointed one. And so we see that Judah, again, what does his name mean? It means praise. Judah means praise. And so he's chosen and he's given this um, representation to become the royal house of Israel. Now in Genesis 49, again, this is when Jacob blesses his 12 sons right before he dies. And Jacob reinforces this reality when he says this. I'm just going to read it to you from Genesis 49. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. So he's playing off his name there. Even his name means praise. Your hand shall be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the prey like a lion when he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Now listen to what he says. Genesis 49.10. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and the allegiance of the nations is his. What that's saying is, is that the ruling staff, the, the staff that a king would hold between his feet as he sat on his royal throne, he's, God is making a predictive prophecy through Jacob here, and he's saying, Judah, your tribe, your heritage will, that, will always be that the king, the royal line, Israel will always go through you. Which is significant because later, when we see King David, who, who by, by and large was the greatest king that Israel ever, ever saw, God made a special covenant with King David. Now, just, just remember, what tribe did King David come from? Judah. He was of the tribe of Judah. Okay? Listen to what the Lord told David. He told David, he made a promise, he made a covenant. He said, David, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Last time I checked, David is still buried in Jerusalem right now. He's dead and gone. So how is it that David's throne, or a descendant from the family of David, how is it that his throne would be established forever when Jesus came on the scene what was one of the most 
popular names that people gave him. Son of David. Son of David, have mercy on me. What were they saying? Son of David. They were acknowledging that you are the Messiah. You're the one who had to come from the tribe of Judah. You had to be born in the family of King David, which Jesus was. Matter of fact, he had David's lineage on both mother and father's side. And they would call him son of David. In other words, they were acknowledging you are the one that will establish the throne of David, our father forever. Because Jesus is not in the grave. David is in the grave. Where's Jesus? He's at the right hand of the father on his way, on his throne right now, awaiting the time when he returns to establish that kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And so all of these things are so very, very important. And so Jesus was called the son of David. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Jesus was Jewish. Now, we're introduced here to Judah, and I think it's important for us to think about this critically for a second. Judah literally and technically was the first Jew. Did you know that? Some people, we, we, don't, we don't recognize this, and, and I, I missed this for years and years and years and years and years. Many will be surprised to discover that not everybody in the Old Testament is Jewish. Did you know that? Abraham wasn't Jewish. Isaac and Jacob were not what? They were not Jewish. Levi and Reuben were not Jewish. Joseph wasn't Jewish. Did you know Moses was not Jewish? Elijah wasn't Jewish. Jeremiah and Samuel were not Jewish. Did you know that? Isn't that funny how we just assume that everybody in the Old Testament is what? They're Jewish. No, they're not. You see, the only people who can literally and by definition be what? Jewish have to come from the tribe of Judah. So when we talk about the Jews or Jewish people, we're only talking about really one or really there's a fractional percentage of people who come from the greater commonwealth of Israel. Remember, how many tribes are in the whole nation of Israel? There's 12 tribes. Really, you start to say 14 when you count Ephraim and, and Manasseh. So you've got all of these other tribes. They're not Jewish. Only those who became part of the who were born of the tribe of Judah or who later were from the kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, only those people who descend from Judah are literally what? Jewish. That's a very important thing that we have missed for many, many, many years because not everybody in Israel is a Jew. You see, God did not lead the Jews out of Egypt. Who did he lead out of Egypt? Israel. And there were a lot of Gentiles mixed in with them as well. A lot of Egyptians came out with them as well. All 12 tribes came out of Egypt. Not just the Jews. The Jews were part of that, just a fractional part of that as one of the 12 tribes. But God led Israel out of Egypt. God did not give the law to the Jews at Mount Sinai. He did not make a covenant there with them, just the Jews. He made a covenant with who? All of Israel. 
the whole nation. And again, Gentiles were included in that as well. Now, I want to say something to you, and if if you want to write this down, I encourage you to write this down. It's going to make perfect sense. All Jews are Israelites. You got that? All Jews are what? Israelites. Not all Israelites are Jews. Case in point. I come from the great state of Mississippi. Don't knock Mississippi now. All Mississippians are Americans. But not all Americans are Mississippians. Are you tracking with me now? You see, Mississippi is just one of 50 what? States. And I'm part of this state called Mississippi. Jews only represent one, technically one, and later two tribes of the 12 when they became the southern kingdom of Judah. They only represent a fractional part of the entire nation of Israel. And so all Jews are Israelites because they belong to the greater body and commonwealth of Israel. But not all Israelites are Jews. And so for centuries, guys, we got all of this mixed up and mistaken because we think that when it says Jew in the Bible, it means Israelite. And when it says Israelite, it just means what? Jew. That's not the case. The Bible makes a what? Distinction. And just to drive it home a little bit further, that when the kingdom of Israel, after Solomon died, split into what? Two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom called Israel, it kept the name. Sometimes it was called Ephraim. Ephraim, Ephraim, however you want to pronounce it. And you had the southern kingdom, which was called the the kingdom of what? Judah. So there was an even further distinction and separation between the northern kingdom, the ten tribes to the north, the two tribes to the south. And the reason this is important is because we've made so much, many errors, and we've gotten so very confused Because the Bible is so clear that there's a separation, there's a distinction, because all Jews may be Israelites, but not all Israelites are Jews. I'll say it to you this way. I'm a Gentile, but I belong to Israel. I'm not Jewish. Never could be, never would try to be. But I am a what? An Israelite by adoption. Ephraim and Manasseh, they had a Hebrew father, but they had an Egyptian mother. They were what? Adopted into Israel. They weren't Jewish, but they're part of Israel. Now, see, guys, these things are important because that's where the story of Joseph comes in. Now, Jesus was Jewish, and it was very important that he had to be Jewish. Why? Because the royal house had to come from the tribe of Judah, and it just so happened that when Jesus entered the scene and was born in the fullness of time, the Jews were still there living in the land. The nation of Israel, the ten tribes to the north, they were long gone. That's where Joseph comes into the picture. So if Judah was chosen to be represent the royal house, of Israel, where the Messiah would be born, the king of Israel would be born, what does Joseph represent? Joseph represents a mixed multitude of God's people from every what? 
nation. Remember, what is Joseph's name? He will increase. He will add to. Now, I want you to think about the story of Joseph. I wish, look, the story of Joseph to me is one of the most fascinating stories in all the Bible. But think about just his life story. I'm going to give you the brief summary. Okay, remember, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, taken into exile into a foreign what? Foreign land, okay? Separated from his family, exiled, alienated. He finds himself as a stranger in a foreign land. And yet as he's there in a foreign land, he, he, God blesses him and protects him. We know the story of Joseph and Joseph becomes assimilated into the Egyptian culture. He spoke the language. He dressed like an Egyptian. He walked like an Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian. He even married an Egyptian wife and had a couple of Egyptian babies. Joseph, is his life is the picture of of what God promised and prophesied that from the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, somewhere down the road, somehow, some way, that there would be a multitude, this, this massive, innumerable people from all the different nations that would become part of Israel. They would be grafted what? Grafted in. They would become part of God's people. And Joseph's life represents that more than anybody else. And so he has these two children in, Israel, in Egypt. His sons were of mixed origin, as I said. So that all the descendants of Joseph now, as he went to Egypt and he took an Egyptian wife and he had two half Egyptian sons, every single descendant from Joseph's family now are mixed blood, Gentile and Hebrew. They didn't have a claim to say, hey, my father is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we're all Hebrews. No, now we have an Egyptian mother in the mix, and all of their children and grandchildren and children after them were of mixed descent, mixed ethnicity. And at the end of the day, isn't that what we really are anyway? We're just a bunch of mixed breeds. We're just a bunch of mixed up people. Got a little DNA from here, a little DNA from there. Because God doesn't care about that. He doesn't care. He's not checking our DNA and saying, oh, do you, do you have blood? Do you have uh, genetic markers in your DNA from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He doesn't care about that. He's caring about what? It's in your heart. What do you believe? And so what we see here is fascinating. Now, remember, Jacob goes back to Egypt after Joseph is exalted. He becomes the king of Egypt. Again, he's a, he's a picture, a type, a shadow of who? Jesus Christ. Joseph is one of the greatest examples, one of the greatest prefigurements or types or shadows of Jesus Christ. When you look at the life of Joseph, it mirrors the life of Jesus. I'll get into more of that in just a second. But remember, he saves his family. They come down to Egypt. They begin living in the land. They survive the seven years of famine. And Jacob, he, when he blessed his sons right before he died, remember, he took Joseph's two sons, his grandsons, 
And he said, I'm going to bless them too and adopt them into my what? Family. So that they would become two of the tribes of Israel. Ephraim and Manasseh. Now I want you to listen to what happens when Jacob blessed his grandsons. Joseph brings his grandsons into the room. He knows Jacob's getting near his death. And he wants him to bless him. And he brings, now I'm pretty sure, if I'm Jacob here, my right hand is here, my left hand is here. So Joseph brings Manasseh, who's the oldest son, and puts him on Jacob's what? Right hand. And he brings Ephraim, or Ephraim, on his left hand. And he says, okay, you know, because what's the, what's the common custom? The older gets the, the blessing, right? The birthright. And Jacob does what? He crosses his hands. And he blessed Ephraim above his older brother, Manasseh. And, jo and Joseph's like, no, 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 father, like, are you old and senile, man? You're getting it all wrong. And Jacob says, no, 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 my son, I know. What was he telling him? I know what I'm doing. Now, I want you to listen to what Jacob told Ephraim. Listen to this. In Genesis 48, it says, Joseph placed his right hand on Ephraim's head, and he took his father's hand, and he tried to move it to Manasseh's, and he said, no, no. I know what I'm doing, my son. I know. He says, Manasseh will become a people, and he, he's, he's going to be great. Nevertheless, listen to what he says about Ephraim. His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Now, in the Hebrew, I love the fact that we can look at this in the Hebrew now. Let me tell you what Jacob said about that. He said, Ephraim will become the fullness of the Gentiles. Has anybody ever heard that phrase in the Bible before? The fullness of the what? The fullness of the Gentiles. Jesus and Paul both talk about the fullness of the Gentiles. I never knew that Jacob was the first one to say that Ephraim will become the fullness, this multitude of the nations from the Gentiles. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, this will be, these will be the days of vengeance, talking about the last days to fulfill everything that is written, how miserable those days will be for pregnant and nursing mothers, for there will be great distress upon this land and wrath against this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword, and they will be led captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then Paul says it. Listen to what Paul says. He's, he's re, in Romans chapter 11, Paul is picking up on what Jacob said here in Genesis chapter 48. Now, I'm going to read this, and it's very important that you stay with me on this, guys, because this is going to help you so much understand what God is doing right now. Listen to this. Paul says, If some branches have been broken off, you Gentiles, a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others to share in the nourishment of the olive root. What's Paul saying? Gentiles out here, separated foreigners, have nothing to do with God, worshiping pagan gods, 
out there doing their own thing, but by faith in Messiah, we have been what? Grafted into the same tree. One tree. He says, do not boast over those branches. If you remember, do not, the, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. For if you were cut from a wild olive tree, and contrary to nature, you're grafted into the one that is cultivated, how much more readily will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Now listen to what he says, guys. Stay with me. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you will become conceited. A partial hardening, a partial blindness has come to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove godlessness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their what does this have to do with anything? Let me say it to you this way. You ready? Jacob told Joseph's son, his grandson, Ephraim, that you and your descendants are going to become the fullness of what? The Gentiles. How did that happen? Do we remember? The northern kingdom, represented by Joseph, was taken away into exile and scattered among the what? The nations. And every time somebody comes and shares the gospel about Jesus Christ to somebody from the nations and they put their faith in Messiah in Jesus Christ, that becomes one more person added back into Israel. So that the fullness of the Gentiles is becoming a little bit more what? Complete. One more person coming in. Way out there in the nation, way out there separated from God, and yet we're told to go and make disciples of all nations. Why go to the nations? Because that's where the lost sheep of the house of Israel are. That's where they were lost and scattered. So every time we go back out into the nations and share the gospel and they put their faith in Messiah, you see the fullness of the Gentiles is becoming complete. And there's going to become a reach a point in time when all of the people from the nations who are going to be saved are what? Saved. And he says, then the end will. But what has happened since then? There's been a partial blindness. A partial blindness. Now, I want you to think about this. I used to read Romans 11 where Paul says, a partial blindness has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles comes in. And I used to say, man, those Jews, they're so blind. They can't even see their own what? Messiah. Man, those Jews, how could they be so blind that all the Jews that are alive today who, who reject Jesus Christ, and I used to look at them and say, man, look at that. The Bible says they're what? They're blind. They don't even know their own Messiah. They reject Jesus. But wait a minute. Remember what I just told you a while ago? I'm not a Jew. But I am part of what? Israel. That told me that there's been a partial blindness that's come upon what? That means that blindness has come upon who? Me. You know what happens? Is that I don't know Jesus either. We forgot who he really was. What do you mean by that? What happened to Joseph? When he went into Egypt, the Egyptians worshipped 
they loved Joseph because he was their savior. Did they know anything about who he really was? They didn't. Did they know anything about his Hebrew heritage? Did they know anything about him being from the uh, father's house of Jacob? No. They knew he saved them. They loved Joseph, but he looked just like them. You see, they were blind to the roots, the historical and family and spiritual roots of Joseph. Church, let me tell you something. We have become what? Blind to the spiritual roots and identity and nature of our own Messiah. Now, are the Jews also blind? Yes, they are. They can't recognize who? Jesus. You know why the Jews can't recognize Jesus? The same reason why Judah and his brothers couldn't recognize Joseph when they went to Egypt. Because when they went to Egypt, who did they see? An Egyptian. Dressed, walked, talked, spoke the language. He assimilated into the culture. He was not their brother as far as they understood. That couldn't be their brother because he didn't look anything like them. He looked like an Egyptian. Why do many of the Jews today reject Jesus as Messiah? Because we as the church have dressed him up like a pagan. We strip his Hebrew identity away from him. We've painted him up in Roman Catholic garb. We've made him look like an effeminate European whatever. And when they look at Jesus, when the Jews look at Jesus, they're like, that can't be our what? That can't be our Messiah. He's nothing like the Messiah we are expecting and we would look like. And they don't even recognize their own Messiah because of the way we have painted him up and portrayed him to the rest of the world. So the Jews are blind at Jesus, but so are we. What is God doing? He's beginning to open everybody's he wants us to see Jesus and appreciate him for who he is as the true Hebrew Jewish Messiah who kept the feast, who obeyed the law, who worshiped on Sabbath, who did all of these things. What would Jesus do? That's the, that's the bracelet that we, that we wear, right? What would Jesus do? Do we really follow Jesus in everything that he did? That's a question I want you to ponder. But the Jews also are beginning to wake up and understand that, wait a minute, this Jesus that the church, the Roman Catholic Church, and even the Protestant Church has been trying to portray to us for so many years, that's not who the Jesus of Scripture really is. And guys, many Jewish people are beginning to open their eyes and put their faith in Messiah. So you got Joseph that's representing the nations, remember? That includes you and me, Gentiles. And you got Judah that represents this little bitty small people group called the Jews. And what God's doing right now is that through Messiah, through Jesus, he's trying to bring Joseph and Judah back together. That's what's happening right now. Now listen to this. I'm going to read one more scripture and then i got to wrap this up. Ezekiel 37. Turn there with me. Ezekiel 37, verse 19. 
This is what the Lord God says. I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, or Ephraim, however you want to pronounce it, and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will put them together with the stick of who? Judah. And I will make them into a single stick. And they will become one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand and in full view of the people, you are to tell them, this is what the Lord God says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations to which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will rule over all of them. Who is that king? Jesus and then they will no longer be two nations, and they will never again be divided into two kingdoms. I'm going to take a stick and write the name Joseph. And I'm going to take another what? Stick and write the name what? Judah, and I'm going to take these two sticks and I'm going to make them become what? One. Because it is at the cross when Jesus, who is the line of the tribe of Judah, so he is also the son of Joseph. You know that? Jesus' adopted father was named what? Joseph. He was to be the suffering servant, the one they were waiting for. God says, I'm going to take these two sticks that have been broken apart. There's been this massive separation. Think about it as you sit here today. Think about it. You're a Christian, right? You, you, you've been in the church your whole life, and you know that you have some relationship with Jewish people. Don't you? Like, man, we got something going on. We're like long-lost brothers. We kind of we have a lot of the same beliefs and similarities, but then we kind of got all this bad history and all this animosity, and there's a lot of mistrust and how, how are we related to the Jews? I'm not Jewish, and neither are you. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of Israel. You're grafted in. You're brought in. And I used to wonder and be confused and say, how are we related? How are we, what is this relationship supposed to be like between Gentile believers in Jesus and Jewish people? And what we need to understand is that what Jesus was doing at the cross is that he was taking these two sticks that had been broken apart and he was putting them what? Back together again at the cross. So that through his blood and his sacrifice and us believing in him, we as Gentiles could become part of Israel and Jews could also put their faith in Messiah so that there would be one people, one nation, never again to be what? divided and boy if you look at the history of our uh, of the church and of the Jews we have been nothing but what divided what if what if God was doing something right now to open our eyes to help us see who we really are to open the eyes of the Jews to help them see who Jesus really is and that he's in the process of bringing us all back together as one so 
that in the last days we will be gathered together in his kingdom forevermore. So as our praise team comes up, what I, what I want you to see is that we have Jacob and we have Judah and we have Joseph and every single one of them have their fulfillment in who? Jesus. Did you know that there was an expectation in Jesus' day? As the praise team comes up, guys, stay with me. It's my last point. Did you know that the rabbis of Jesus' day believed that there would be two messiahs? Did you know that? They were expecting Messiah ben Joseph. Messiah, the son of Joseph, who was to be the suffering servant. The one who would be what? Killed. He would die. And, and they believed that he would be raised from the dead. So they thought that, that the scriptures taught about a Messiah who was to be the son of Joseph, and he was going to die. But the scriptures also taught about another Messiah. He was Messiah ben David, ben David who was to be the conquering what? King. The one who was going to come and finally and ultimately crush the enemies of Israel and establish the kingdom on earth, the kingdom of Israel. So what they didn't understand was that Jesus, is that there aren't two different messiahs. There's no Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. These are not two different people. These are all what? He's the same person. What they didn't understand is they're not talking about two different people. He, the Bible was talking about two different comings. Two different comings. That he would come the first time as the lamb. And then he would come the second time as the lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. So guys, as we go and we sing one more song, I want to take you all the way back to where we started. I share a message like that sometimes in, in the context of the church because I want us to understand how to read our Bibles again. I want us to understand what the scriptures are talking about. I want us to understand where do we fit into all this. How are we supposed to look at our Jewish brothers? Why do the Jews not accept Jesus? Why have we abandoned Jesus' Hebrew roots? All of these questions are important. But at the end of the day, here's what I want you to take away today is that all that information is great, and it's important. But at the end of the day, you don't even have to understand any of that stuff. All you got to know is that God loves you. He, he wants a relationship with you. And he has blessed you immeasurably more than anything that you could possibly ask or imagine. God has blessed you and me so much more than we what? Deserve. All because of what Jesus has done for us. By going to the cross on our behalf, taking our place so that a rotten, wretched sinner like me could be forgiven and given a relationship with God, restored to God. If, if God didn't do anything else for us in the whole world, he had done more than enough. But yet you wake up every day and there he is, provision every day. His mercies are new every morning. He's there giving you blessing and provision and taking care of you and 
helping you and assisting you and encouraging. He goes above and beyond. He gives us more than we could ever possibly imagine or deserve. And what should that cause us to do? Judah, praise him. Praise him. And you know where I've been? Stuck in a lot of ways these last... I've been angry at God. Why would you let this happen, Lord? Complaining to God. See, it's easy to praise God on the mountaintop. But he wants you also to praise him where? In the valley. Just like Joseph. Spending years in the pit. He never stopped what? Never stopped praising God. So guys, no matter where you are today, I want you to just take this time as we sing one more song. I just want you to thank God and praise him for who he is, for what he has done. And if anything, we can be a hand raised in church too, right? Don't be afraid to raise your hand and sing praises to God. So we're going to sing one more song, guys. Why don't we stand together as we prepare our hearts to worship? This altar is open, but you can finish there right where you are and praise him from where you are. Yeah. 